This is an ABC podcast. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon. Annie Brown is my name. Good to have your company on this Friday afternoon. Now, it's that time of the year again. It's how you know it's a new year, maybe. But the new lamb ad has dropped and it's calling people out by doing things that are, quote, un-Australian. What are you here for? Tried to eat a meat pie with these. Don't know the words to K-San. Charged him a dollar for tomato sauce. It's pretty funny. We'll go through the ad and dissect it and find out the story behind it later on and see, is it really going to improve lamb sales, inspire people to buy more lamb? But also this afternoon, uh, we'll give you a harvest update. Grain Corp has received just over 10 million tonnes of grain already for this harvest along the East Coast, and they're about 80% done. So... It doesn't look like they're going to beat last year's 14 million tonnes. And also floods moving through Australia's inland areas have been inundating vineyards in three states, so New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. We'll also find out what impact that is going to have on this year's vintage. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. But first up, let's talk lamb. Have you seen the new lamb ad yet? This year's annual campaign funded by Meat and Livestock Australia's producer levy shows ordinary people being disappeared to a desert wasteland for any offences deemed un-Australian. Take a listen. What are you here for? Tried to eat a meat pie with these. Don't know the words to K-San. Charged him a dollar for tomato sauce. <coughs> what is this? Where am I? Lamb. <coughs> How's that unastrowed? All I said was bon appetit. Beautiful day. Lamb. Doesn't get any better than this. I'm Graeme Yardy and I'm the Domestic Market Manager for Meat and Livestock Australia. The idea behind the ad really is, you know, lamb, it's such a fantastic meat. It's the only meat that really brings people together. And we know that, you know, obviously the aroma and the taste and it's hard to resist the smell of lamb when it's cooking in a house and we know that it's such a great sharing thing and it really does bring people together and every year we we look for something topical but we also think about well what are the things that are keeping people apart and what can lamb do to um to help i guess uh, break down those barriers and this year we we focused on this idea about calling things un-australian and and what we found out was really it's got it, it's really out of hand you know we've obviously seen it used in politics we've seen it used in general parlance but we really seen how calling something an Australian sort of is, is actually quite divisive and tries to separate us and for some way sort of say we're not worthy of the term Australian and so I think we decided to poke fun at the ridiculousness of, of calling it and really work out that we're actually all doing things that someone could call out an Australian and we also found out that actually a lot of people have been called un-Australian for things they're doing. There's been a number of challenges for livestock producers in Australia and lamb producers with flooding and, and weather conditions but you know at the same time lamb prices went up quite a lot last year too and have been hearing from consumers that are choosing uh, other types of meat just with the cost of living rising. 
How much do you think this ad campaign might help to get more people to choose lamb? Without a doubt, we're all feeling those pressures in all aspects of our lives these days. But, you know, I think where this ad comes to play is that we always set out to really remind people about why lamb is so great. And we have the best product in the world. It's, you know, amazingly produced in some of the, the best country in the in the world. And, and that quality really comes through and it's something that our lamb producers are, are really proud of and should be as well. Meat and Livestock Australia's domestic market manager, Graham Yardy. So what do people in the industry think about the lamb ad? Pastoralist David Farley from Narracourt in South Australia says the ads usually catch his attention. I'm probably not very social media savvy. I'm a bit unusual for a 44-year-old farmer. I'm probably not on any social media and things like that. So when I've got some spare time, I'll probably just go onto the MLA website. If I'm looking at some livestock prices, I'll just sort of see it there and go on it from there. He says prices for quality lamb have remained strong in the last six months. The demand for, I think the lamb seems to be very good and good quality lamb is really about quality seems to sell very much and that's sort of the aim, the end that we're sort of aimed at and that we sort of sell to some sort of more specialised markets and those markets don't seem to be affected much at all whereas more of our older sheep seem to be more affected like any, any cull sheep and things like that the markets really come right back. Narracourt pastoralist David Farley. Brett Gerbhardt is a butcher in South Australia's Riverland. He says he usually sees a spike in sales after the annual lamb ad airs. You know, the Sam Kakovich uh, ads that always seem to pop up just before Australia Day, everyone loves them, and they are very controversial. It's great to see those ads come through and, and always get a bit of a smile in their face because it does, it stimulates everybody's thoughts when it comes to barbecuing and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. He says more shoppers are choosing secondary cuts of lamb amid cost-of-living pressures. Looking back a lot of years ago, it was just a lamb roast on a Sunday um, and, you know, even the byproducts like lamb shanks were thrown out to the animals outside, the dogs outside and the lamb flaps. Now everybody's, you know, we can't keep up. We wish lamb had probably ten legs instead of four because there's just not enough lamb shanks to go around because the change and the trends of people's eating habits. And, uh, and, and I guess, yeah, again, it comes down to a lot of the familiarisation with what gets put on television and how people perceive certain cuts now, which were secondary cuts, have now become very, very popular. What are some of the secondary cuts that have risen in popularity? Well, speaking of the shanks and the breast, obviously the flaps, it's a bit similar to, I know we're talking lamb, but it's very similar to when you do a breakdown of a, of a, of a beef. You know, like brisket was not so much even sought after back in those days. Now everything, everybody's into low and slow. So even the, the cuts from a lamb's chest plate can be done so well that it's almost like it, it becomes a, a gourmet product. That's Riverland butcher Brett Gebhardt ending that story from Eliza Burledge with additional reporting from Elsie Amato. And you can see the MLA lamb ad on Australian lamb social pages or chuck it into Google, I reckon it'll come up. But keen to know what your thoughts are if you have seen the ad or just listening from that story, you've got a bit of an idea of what it's about. Do you, do you think it's a good idea? Did it make you laugh? Did it make you cry maybe roll your eyes (laughs) but most importantly did it make you want to have lamb for dinner tonight does it want make you want to eat more lamb you can send us a text on 0467842722 with your thoughts now the end of this year's grain harvest is almost in sight so far grain corp has received just over 10 million tons of grain across the east coast of australia 
Last year, they received more than 14 million tonnes all up. However, with a wet season and harvest delays, numbers will likely be lower. I spoke to Jason Shanley, Grain Corp Senior Manager of National Operations, for a harvest update. Yeah, so pleasingly, uh, yesterday actually, we just ticked over 10 million tonnes into the network in total. Um, seeing <clears throat> Queensland, northern New South Wales areas are pretty much tailing off, but we're still seeing some strong receivals in southern New South Wales and particularly into Victoria. Um, Victoria currently sitting in about 3.2 million tonnes received into the network, which is fantastic. So just over 10 million tonnes already. Um, what have some of the primary areas been at the moment? Uh, look, in, in Victoria, um, actually all regions are, are performing pretty well, but particularly the southern Mallee um, has, has been, uh, had uh, yeah, quite surprising yields there with some good tonnes, but also uh, Swan Hill performed really well, uh, particularly in comparison to what we've seen in the last few seasons, um, and, and the Wimmera uh, performing strongly, as it always does. And how much more are you expecting before the end of harvest? Um, look, I, I think we're probably uh, maybe 70 to 80% done now, but... Um, some areas are, are actually only just getting into wheat uh, in a big way, particularly down in the in the southern and southwestern regions. So last season, did you have around 14 million tonnes all up? Was that roughly about it? Yeah, yeah. So across the network last year, um, and look, we around about that uh, 13, 6 to 14 million across the network. Um, we were probably on track to do something similar this year before we uh, obviously lost a, 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 a fair bit of damage, uh, particularly in New South Wales uh, with the floods up there, which uh, is obviously devastating to those growers. Um, but, you know, having said that, uh, the quality that did come off was, um, was probably, yeah, surprisingly uh, not too bad. Yeah, so the, the floods have had a bit of an impact there in terms of numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and probably, look, it's 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 interesting. There's there's probably still a fair bit of grain still sitting out in, in paddocks uh, and that uh, for a couple of reasons. Some areas they simply, you know, weren't able to get onto the paddocks uh, just with the water lying around, but there's other areas where um, road closures have, have meant they can't get their grain to a uh, to a receivable depot. So there could still be some, some grain moving around post-harvest. Uh, you added 2 million tonnes of extra storage this year for harvest, so uh, has it not been all used, obviously, this year then? Yeah, look, as we... Uh, being, being the challenging year that it was, uh, probably one of, the, one of the wettest years on records for a long time, um, we, yeah, originally we were aiming for about 2 million tonnes of additional storage. Um, we actually pulled back on some of those projects where it was simply too wet to complete them. Um, so, yeah, look, we've, we've probably ended up putting in about a, around about a million tonne of extra storage across the network. And how's quality been with the grain that you have received so far? Actually really good. Uh, seeing particularly in Victoria, uh, Victorian growers have delivered again, uh, you know, a lot more malt than uh, I think there was a fear that there wouldn't be a lot of malt barley around, but, um, yeah, certainly delivered um, in, in that space. Um, and with the wheat crop, um, look, it, it's probably still going 70 to 80% milling grades. And obviously a big busy time of year where you're after a lot of staff and we've spoken previously about putting the call out for more staff for harvest. How did you go with labour sourcing this season? Yeah, look, it was uh, it was challenging in some areas. Uh, look, there's Victoria, um, yeah, look, the harvest does tend to fall into that uh, that period where we've got uh, school holidays and university holidays. So we probably fared pretty well in Victoria. Um, we had a, a large backpacker contingent, uh, particularly um, starting up in Queensland, and a, a lot of those people have actually moved south. So we have 
we have ended up um, with a, enough staff to get the job done. Um, you know, in some areas it has where we where we didn't get uh, the full numbers that we were after. That may have meant that um, you know some reduced hours at some sites. But all in all, pretty pleased we've been able to um, offer you know pretty good service to growers um, with the numbers that we've had. It has been a really challenging uh, year of 2022 for a lot of people. But um, now that we're sort of in the the end stage of harvest, uh, how are you feeling about it at the moment? How would you sum it up so far? Good question. It's uh, definitely been a, a different one. It feels like it's been going for a long time, uh, which it has. Um, but yeah, look, most areas are sort of four to six weeks behind where they would usually be. Um, but as I said, it, it, it has been surprising uh, the way quality has held up um, in that, you know, given given the uh, the weather events that we've been through. So look, certainly been a, a, let's just call it a different harvest, but I think it's still been a very successful one. We carried a fair bit of grain into this harvest, so um, from a supply chain perspective, um, you know, we have still serviced our customers really well. We've been um, out turning across the network uh, well over 200,000 tonnes a week, um, you know, which is pretty amazing when you consider um, how much, you know, we're out turning that much grain at the same time as receiving um, significant tonnes into the system as well. So the supply chain has performed really well. Um, and you know, in a, you know, going back to talking about the additional storage, um, you know, with the harvest uh, pushing back as, as far as it did, um, that did mean that we we're able to actually create uh, additional space um, just through grain moving out of the network as well. So that's meant that we've been able to um, yeah receive um, you know all of those tons into the, the storage available. That is Jason Shanley, the Senior Manager of National Operations with Grain Corp. They're giving us a bit of a, an update on grain harvest this year with the majority already done and about 10 million tonnes of grain received across the network. Now, a leading sheep meat exporter says Australia's new fair trade agreement with India is a great first step, but there's still a long way to go. The FTA came into effect last week and it cut the 30% tariff on imported Aussie lamb and sheep meat to zero. Roger Fletcher, director of export company Fletcher International, told Hannah Jost the agreement was many years in the making and entering the market will take some careful handling. Well, you know, as all markets, we've, we've got to find the platform and get the foundations down for the marketing of it. Um, you know, they're not used to importing frozen meat, so that's one issue. So you've got to have the facilities, you've got to have the um, uh, movements of moving around the country. India is a big country, and uh, different parts will have different sorts of product. And um, you said this uh, this free trade agreement has been, you know, many years in the making, and you've been uh, somewhat involved. Would you tell us uh, what it's taken to get to this point? Well, it's, it's taken us 10 years to get there. I mean, we've got many Indians coming to Australia and this product's coming here and it's a matter of um, trying to get it back there. And, uh, you know, and Australia's got to understand, um, you know, nearly 50% of their population is farmers, so they've got to protect, they're looking at protecting their patch. And um, we see sheep meat as an important part for them, but it's going to take time to grow the market. And what is the demand in the market for Australian sheep meat like in India at the moment? Um, look, till we, till we get going there, we can't say. I mean, you know, you can do all the consultants and everything else, but you've got to have the practical side of doing it. And uh, it'll be little steps and uh, we won't be there just thinking you've got to send containers of meat over there and people are going to take it off the wharf. It's not going to happen that way. 
And so what kind of export are we talking about? Is it all frozen meat or is there like live trade potential here? Oh, no, no, no. It'll, it'll, it'll be all um, frozen or chilled meat. Chilled meat will go probably to the high end and we do, we've been doing a little bit of that for the last few years, but the tariffs made it impossible. And, uh, you know, then it's training the people to use frozen meat. So, you know, there's a, those sorts of things just don't happen overnight. And uh, have our sheep meat exports to India grown over the last few years, or what is the what is the status? Oh, been? No, no, no. It's been impossible to grow because you know the tariffs really. When you put it all together, it's about thirty five percent, and thirty five percent of the gross price when you get to a country makes it just utterly impossible. So there could not be any growth while we had tariffs like that. Are there any issues you're expecting from a trade with India? Any supply chain issues or any other difficulties down the track? Uh, many of difficulties. That's that's no different to every country we deal with. Um, you know, you think we got it. Uh, every country we got getting it off the wharves, getting it into cold storage, which is not geared for it. Um, trucking. Um, now we're we're really responsible. My name's on the carton or on the product till the consumer takes it. So if it's not handled in between, right? Um, we've got a problem, and, and uh, yes, I've got to take ownership of that. It was going to be a very difficult issue. And, uh, but look, that's the challenges we've done with many countries before. It's not, it's not new to us, and, and it's not frightening. It's just a matter of going slowly and not thinking it's just all going to happen. And I mean, anyone who thinks they're going to go into these new countries and uh, just blast the market up there and send a few containers up, well, they're in for a shock. That was Director of Fletcher International, Roger Fletcher, speaking to Hannah Joes. You are listening to the Victorian Country Hour. Annie Brown is my name. It is 22 past 12. Coming up next, a uh, pretty cute, nice story, I think, we need for a Friday afternoon. Uh, we're going to head down to Tasmania where a bunch of guinea pigs have taken over. And you might be thinking, guinea pigs, what are they good for? Well, apparently they make excellent lawnmowers in the orchard. I'll take you down to Tassie to Guinea Vale up next. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Now, southern Tasmanian man Steve Ransley always liked guinea pigs, but he never expected them to be such a big part of his life. And he definitely didn't know that they would become TikTok stars as well. All he needed was some lawn mowers, so he didn't have to spend hours mowing his small orchard just outside Hobart. But reporter Meg Whitfield dropped into the orchard to see the small village made especially for guinea pigs. Gonna be interesting. I don't know how they'll go if you're standing there. Oh. Just down these steps is a bustling community, with the residents hairier than most. Welcome to Guineavale, population 37. Well, my name's Steve Ransley. Um, we're at Guineavale. When the Ransleys first got guinea pigs, it was to help mow the lawns of their orchard, but. 
it didn't take long for the family to grow. Guinea whale came around, I needed some lawnmowers originally, the lawnmower is this orchard. Um, the orchard's around about a quarter of an acre big and it's set out with fruit trees and I got a couple of them just to use as lawnmowers and from that point onwards I got a few more and they turned out to be good lawnmowers but I actually fell in love with the guinea pigs myself. So every Christmas, every birthday, every Father's Day, what did I get? I got guinea pigs as presents. So hence all the guinea pigs I've got now. Um, it works both ways. Uh, they keep the grass down a bit. They make us all happy. Um, we enjoy having them here. And they're very cute, very little animals. And when did you decide to start actually building up this whole little village for them? How did that happen? Uh, that happened because mainly I wanted something from the grandkids. Uh, just something to, you know, one of those memories that they would have later in life as something quirky, something different, like we all have about our parents or grandparents. And this was it. Um, I wanted a little village and it will continue. I will build more to it over, over time. It will get bigger and bigger. Um, but yeah, it was mainly for the grandkids, just somewhere we could come down, sit and relax and be comfortable. And it was to provide a home for these guys. Looking after the guinea pigs is no small task, but it's a labour of love. Uh, the houses that you see, every brick, every tile is cut into them uh, with a sharp edge. Um, then they're hand painted, the windows are all made. The, it would probably take me about a month to make each house. Um, inside the house is a box, inside of a box, inside of a box. They're quite well insulated. During the summer months, these guys will live inside these houses mainly and go in and out of them and during the colder months than that they have an indoor area as well. Now they have a handmade village to call their own and a growing social media presence. Talk me through the whole social media empire you're building. How did that happen? Uh, and did well, it take you by surprise how much people wanted to see these guinea pigs? It did. It really took me by surprise. I first started out, uh, people said to me, oh, you've got to put them on TikTok. The grandkids said to me, put them on TikTok, Pop. Uh, my own kids said it to me and that, so I, I'm not a social media person really and TikTok was all very new to me so I put them up on TikTok and you know they got a couple of thousand views then they got 10,000 views and 100,000 views now they're getting the millions and um, it's a great way for me because we have grandkids spread about uh, we've got some that live here um, We've got some that are in Hobart and we've also got a grandchild that lives in WA. And it's great for them because they can all watch them and see them. Um, and, and because it's not a public place, it's, social media is just a great place for me to share the everyday life of these guys. Is it something that you'd consider, you know, opening up for people to want to come and see or is it, you know, this is your special place, you can share it with them, but at the end of the day, this is your community? I, I would I would consider that and have considered that. It's just a financial thing. Uh, it would cost me a, quite a large amount of money to turn this into a public place. Um, I'd love to do it. Whether I can do it, I don't know. That's the problem. And just how much upkeep is involved oh. with this? It's quite a big <laughs> piece of land you've got here. What does your day-to-day -day usually look like? Guinea Vale gets cleaned twice a day and like I said it's in two areas, it's this area what you see here and an indoor area. Um, when I clean this in the mornings and change the bedding and that, that's done every day, that's 
That takes me about an hour to do that, probably an hour and a half. And that involves cleaning all the surface you hear and here, change, like I said, changing the bedding and all that. And a couple of times a week I'll pressure wash it. So each day I spend probably two or three hours cleaning this place. During the week I'll pressure wash it probably twice and that will take me four hours each time I do it. Do you think people are surprised by how much uh, personality these tiny little animals can have? They always remind me of a village of Smurfs. That's what I always think of Smurfs when I say these guys. They live in a community, they live well together, surprisingly well. They get on it, like you see now, there's no fighting, no bickering. Um, yeah, they do everything together. Sometimes they're spread off into groups, but you know, there'd be probably 10 in a group. And what comes next for Guineadale? Have you uh, got grand plans? Uh, yes, um, I've got, these guys need a, need a church. They, I think they could do a bit of re religion, so they'll have a church and they'll have a pub and the pub will serve, obviously, Guinness. <laughs> obviously Guinness, um, the, the guinea pig pub. That was Steve Ransley there, showing reporter Meg Whitfield his miniature guinea pig village, uh, Guinea Vale, which he started as a way to keep the grass in his orchard down. And you can go have a look at the delightful guinea pig village online if you'd like, if you need a few boosts of serotonin to your brain <laughs> looking at some photos of guinea pigs in a tiny village. Uh, head to abc.net.au forward slash news uh, and look up Tasmania's tiny town for guinea pigs. <laughs> a social media sensation. A really lovely story there put together by Meg Whitfield. Now, still to come on the Country Hour, we're going to head to Mulamine, a community uh, that weeks ago was flooded and farmers were boating in and out of their properties. We um, we spoke to a few people out there uh, over the course of December, but now the water has gone down and there's abundance of carp uh, that's come into the waterways and trucks still can't get in and out on the damaged roads. So we'll check in out there. And also markets are back today, so we'll get the latest markets reports market report from Hamilton today as well. Uh, but before that, we're going to just uh, do things a little bit opposite today, and we're going to go to the weather first. We're joined this afternoon by Senior Meteorologist Simon Timkey. Good afternoon, Simon. G'day, Annie. How's the weather looking today at the moment? It's looking very sunny in Wodonga, I've got to say. Yeah, plenty of sunshine right across the north of the state today. Um, looking on the satellite picture, though, a bit of cloud over, over Gippsland, and, and a bit of patchier cloud over remaining parts of the central and southwestern districts. Uh, and there are a couple of isolated light showers showing up over, um, over East Gippsland and not really expecting uh, much in the way of totals, but we have seen a, a, a few spots pick up uh, one to two millimetres or so since 9am this morning. So uh, a, a few light showers, mostly over East Gippsland, maybe the odd one in, uh, in West Gippsland as well. But generally speaking, the rest of the state dry, plenty of sunshine uh, uh, across the north today. The winds generally uh, east to southeasterly in direction. We'll see them freshen up a little bit during the afternoon about some of the coastal areas with, uh, with some, some sea breezes. Temperature-wise today, um, it's uh, a little bit warmer in general than, uh, than it was uh, yesterday, expecting temperatures into the, the low 30s or very high 20s across the north uh, and generally 
mid 20s across the south, but only in the low 20s about uh, about Gippsland. Uh, conditions expected to warm up over the weekend uh, as the high pressure system currently centred near Tassie moves eastwards. We'll see the winds over Victoria tend around a little bit more northeasterly, bring some warmer air down from the north. Uh, I think both Saturday and Sunday will be dry. Uh, no showers expected anywhere. Maybe a little bit of patchy morning fog about the uh, ranges over central and eastern parts. Uh, and then temperatures up a little bit on those of today with those northeasterly winds, generally into the, into the mid-30s over western districts, around 30 or so over the central parts and into the mid-20s for eastern parts, and generally a, a, a few degrees warmer on, uh, on Sunday. Um, compared with Saturday over, over most parts. So with those higher temperatures, we'll see the, the fire dangers up a little bit, generally uh, uh, reaching into the high um, bracket in the northwestern part of the state. Um, and, uh, and then on Monday, we've got a change moving across. Uh, we'll see... Um, Southerly winds extending, uh, uh, gradually extending across uh, the state from the west, bringing some some milder conditions, but not expecting much in the way of showers with that change. I think conditions will remain mostly dry on uh, on Monday, although we will see some cloud develop uh, gradually across the south as that change moves across, but still remaining mostly sunny in the north. I think, uh, and then on Tuesday, some isolated light showers about Gippsland. Um, uh, mild in the south, but still warm to hot and sunny in the north on Tuesday. So really over the next uh, next four or five days or so, any uh, mostly dry conditions right across the state and, and hot in parts over the, uh, over the weekend. Sounds very summery. Um, anything else we need to know about today, Simon, or any warnings out? No, the only warnings we've got out are for, for coastal areas. We've got uh, uh, some strong wind warnings out for, for some of the coasts, for the, uh, the, the west coast, central coast, uh, Port Phillip and Western Port. Uh, and, and for those, some of those areas, that strong wind warning continue tomorrow. But no, no warnings over the land areas other than the uh, warning left for the Murray uh, up in the far northwest there, which is down to a minor to moderate warning now. So the flood level's up that way, gradually receding. How long has that flood warning been in place for the Murray River? Oh, it's been going for a long time now, hasn't it? I can't remember the exact date that it started, but it's certainly been going for the order of months now. Um, But I think the the highest peak has certainly moved into South Australia now, so we're Mm. seeing the more significant flooding um, through the the Riverland and Murray lands in South Australia now. Simon, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. Have a great weekend. Thanks a lot, Annie. Hope you do too. That's Simon Timkey, Senior Meteorologist at the Bureau of Meteorology, bringing us the latest update with the weather. Now it's time to check in to find out what is making regional news headlines with Rio Davis. Good afternoon, Annie. Making news around regional Victoria, the Rural Doctors Association says it supports a call from the Victorian and New South Wales Premiers to fund more free general practitioners. Premiers Daniel Andrews and Dominic Perrottet have said they will lobby the federal government at the next National Cabinet meeting to overhaul Medicare and boost the rate of bulk billing. RDAV President Dr Dan Wilson says medical issues are exacerbated in the country, so regional perspectives are needed. Police are urging boat operators to ensure their vessels are in working order after two people were rescued off the Great Ocean Road in the state's southwest. Emergency services were alerted at about half past eight last night by the skipper of the boat that he was 750 metres offshore at Johanna and couldn't start his engines. 
A police helicopter was called in as it was believed the boat may roll. A 52-year-old South Australian man and a 52-year-old Melbourne woman were rescued and avoided injury. An urban planning academic says the increase in population in regional Victoria during the pandemic is a positive change. New data show Melbourne's population went down over 2020 to 2021, while regional areas continued to grow. RMIT Associate Professor Andrew Butt says the shift was ultimately a two-year blip, but it should be welcomed by policymakers. And young sailors are today competing in the last day of this year's 420 National Championships in a coastal Gippsland town. Teenagers aged between 13 and 19 years from across the country are competing for the Australian title on 420 boats, which are 4.2 metres long and have three sails. Me Tung's Yacht Club is hosting this year's event with 19 boats in the race. For more regional news at any time, you can visit www.abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Rio. Lovely excuse to go out to Me Tung, it sounds like. You are listening to the Victorian Country Hour. Annie Brown is my name. It is 23 minutes to one. Now, we're going to head back out to a community that was greatly impacted by the floods uh, last year, at the end of last year in 2022, and the water may have gone down in a lot of communities around Victor- northern Victoria and southern New South Wales, but there's still a lot of issues to work out and some pretty unwelcome visitors have also turned up. Mullamine Rice Farmer and Chair of the National Irrigators Council, Jeremy Morton, has found clusters of carp bubbling in the waterways on his property in the Riverina. And on top of that, the damage to the roads is still cutting off access for trucks and heavy machinery to get into his farm. Yeah, look, it's probably the same as, as many other places across the basin. The, the carp have just you know, bred to, to extraordinary levels over the last sort of three months while we've had this this flood. Um, yeah, they're, they're just incredible. Like, you just see them um, in certain bits of water be just like uh, like the water's boiling with with carp it's 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 incredible and carp are an ongoing pest that we're, we're dealing with and they can do a lot of damage to the waterways but what's your concern with seeing so many carp in the system at the moment oh well it is i mean it's they just overwhelm everything else i mean it's it's one way to think about it is just like overstocking you know if you had too many sheep or cattle or whatever on on your property that's basically what it's like they're they're dominating the whole ecosystem um you know they make up sort of 80 to 90 percent of the biomass in the rivers is what what we understand so you know they make it very difficult for everything else and they just compete for all the resources um you know because one good thing about flooding is it mobilizes a lot of carbon and and that's sort of the building blocks of life so there's plenty of opportunity there for life it's just a shame that it's european carp that are getting the the biggest boost out of it i guess what would you like to see happen in terms of carp control well i think we actually just need to do you know make some decisions and actually progress some of this stuff um you know there's no silver bullet i don't think but you know like if you do nothing then the problem doesn't go away and it just makes it really hard for our for all our native species to sort of survive so we need to progress it we need to actually make some decisions and actually get a program underway to actually deal with with european carp because if we don't nothing changes and we've spoken to you previously before on the Country Hour, Jeremy, about um, Moulamine and the great impacts that it was endured during the flooding just uh, weeks ago, really, months ago. How's it looking at your place at the moment? 
Yeah, look, in, in our part of the world, basically the floodwaters are now all back in the river channel, so it's it's off the off the floodplain. There's a few areas where there's still water lying, but, yeah, like the all the roads and things that were underwater are, are now um, dry, like the uh, the river I live on, the Nema, that's probably dropped about two and a half metres, so, yeah, it's all back in the river channel. Um, but, yeah, the, what we're seeing now is, and we were well aware of it at the time, is just all the massive damage that's been done to, to local infrastructure, all the roads, uh, you know, anywhere there was water over them are severely damaged, so council are trying to patch up where they can, but, um, yeah, there's, a, there's still a number of roads that are closed, even though there's no water on them. What's that done for access to to Mulamine? You know, the roads are severely damaged and, and they're trying to do the best they can, I guess, with with limited resources. So, um, And then for us personally, like, we got isolated. We couldn't actually get, you know, get in by road at all. We were boating into our property. And um, now, that, now the water's gone, the actual road that the water was running over, it's been pretty much washed away and you can drive a car over it's supposed to be closed but we've got to get in obviously to do do stuff um, but there's no way you could take any machinery or trucks or anything in so we're, we're still even though the water's gone we're still um, limited in what we can do in terms of access getting grain in and out um, you know shifting livestock you know getting fertilizer or, or chemical or whatever and it's pretty challenging and how's your rice crop looking at the moment how did it um, how did it bounce back or endure the floods so we were we were very lucky. None of our, um, well, a very small part of our um, sort of winter crop went underwater, but largely um, we kept the water out of out of our properties. So that's that's been good. But the the start to the rice season was pretty cool. Um, I think we had come at some of the you know, you know almost coldest on record months when we were trying to establish the crop. So it was a bit of a struggle to get it going. But um, yeah, the warm weather we've had over the last. Uh, a couple of weeks has actually really picked it up, so it's sort of coming to the the critical stage where we um, yes yeah, assess you know whether it needs additional fertilizer before it sort of basically sets the yield. Uh, so yeah, we're sort of coming up to a critical stage in the next sort of month or so. That's Mullamine Rice Farmer and Chair of the National Irrigators Council, Jeremy Morton, giving us a bit of an update of what things are looking like out his way at the moment. Still lots of issues to work out after the flooding. Now, sticking with water news, a final scientific report on the causes of algae blooms in the Curdies River near Peterborough in southwest Victoria has been delayed. Work on the report started in 2020 and now community groups have raised concerns about another bloom developing in the coming months. Last year, the river conditions got so bad that there were multiple fish kills in the estuary and 25 dead cows were removed from the toxic water. Sarah Holland-Clift from the Karangamite Catchment Management Authority, which commissioned the Deakin study, says the final report will be released by the end of the month and a long-term work and long-term work is underway to fix the water system. Well, the Curtis River at the moment, um, the water quality is doing okay. Um, it's obviously had some fairly high flows and rainfall over the um, end of last year, kind of October, November period. Um, but yeah, uh, we'll be watching it over the next few months as the um, temperatures start to rise, uh, just to um, yeah, to monitor pretty closely and, and see if there's any chance of a bloom, for example, occurring. So there was a study by Deakin University that was commissioned by the Karangamite Catchment Management Authority. That's been delayed. Yep. Why is that? 
Oh, look, to be honest, a, a fairly innocent reason. Um, uh, leave uh, requirements, and that included some uh, COVID-impacted leave uh, in December uh, of the key people undertaking the work. So um, it's only delayed by about three weeks. So um, uh, all of the uh, people in our Curtis River e-newsletter received a, an update in December and uh, uh, waiting for the report to come through uh, by the end of this month. So there were some initial results presented by the Deakin scientists in October. What did that indicate? Yeah, so the initial results uh, essentially uh, tell us a few things. Uh, one, that uh, kind of the base nutrient levels uh, within the system are declining or are stable. So over the last essentially 30 years, uh, the phosphorus and nitrogen levels are either remaining fairly stable, so the same, or have actually reduced in the waterway over that period. Um, I guess it's important to highlight that, um, uh, that despite that, the levels of nutrients are still uh, extremely high uh, and orders of magnitude higher than uh, what you would ideally want to see in a river system. Um, the other element is that uh, when there's high rainfall, uh, we're seeing uh, a higher, much higher level of nutrients. And what that's indicating is that there's no kind of singular or a few uh, particular sources of nutrients coming into the river. Uh, it means that it's coming off, um, kind of runoff from the catchment, so all over the land around the Curtis River. So how long do you think it will take for the Curtis River to get back to a healthy, sustainable flow? Oh, look, that's the, the golden question and, uh, and one that uh, a river scientist cannot give you a, um, you know, a, a particular time period. Um, it all depends on, I guess, the rate of change. So um, it's clear that things like uh, revegetating stream banks uh, makes a difference. Uh, it, it's a good buffer and, uh, and stops some of that erosion and runoff coming from the catchment. Uh, so if we can increase the rate of uh, landholders and, and others uh, revegetating, fencing off um, the rivers, then that will help. Um, and, yeah, and obviously wanting to kind of reduce the amount of nutrient um, that's being applied on land uh, and ensuring that that's being utilised on the land and not ro running off into waterways. So, yeah, so the golden question is, is how long? And, uh, and it's really just as to how, how quickly, um, yeah, we can see that kind of change happen in the catchment. Obviously, that's a longer-term solution to try and make a, a fix, I suppose, for lack of a better term. Yeah, absolutely. But there yeah. Has... And I look, it stems back to... Um, you know, the, the clearance in that catchment has, has been going on since the 1940s and, uh, you know, and that, that's happened over a kind of 50, 60 year period. And so it's a, it's a long game. There has been some concern from some community members about what to do about the river right now as far as trying to improve the quality in the shorter term as well. Is there any kind of plans in that regard? Yeah, look, that's a really good question and one that we've been pretty actively investigating. Um, so the Deakin scientists have had a look into um, several different methods that have been either put forwards through community members or they've been able to find through the scientific literature to look at any kind of short to medium term uh, measures to mitigate the blue-green algae blooms. Um, so those things include things like um, flocculation, ultrasonics, copper sulfate, um, opening estuary mouths and other things. And basically what they've found is that each method has its advantages and benefits. Um, but 
some of the limitations and the trade-offs and the risks does raise concern for using any of these methods at this stage in the Curtis estuary. They're all very, um, yeah, unproven, I guess, in terms of that kind of natural system and particularly a system uh, like an estuary. So, yeah, we are really keen to continue investigating whether there are viable methods for managing the blooms in the short term. We would love to find something that did work and that didn't have those detrimental impacts on, on the estuary at the same time. Uh, so, you know, we'll continue investigating that. But um, at this stage, we haven't been able to identify any um, short-term fixes that don't then have much bigger risks associated with them as well. That is Sarah Holland-Clift from the Corangamite Catchment Management Authority speaking to Jay McNaughton. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. It's 11 minutes to one. Annie Brown is my name. It's nice to have your company this afternoon. Now, the floods moving through Australia's inland areas have been inundated, have been inundating vineyards in three states. That's New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. It's decimated some crops and fences and irrigation equipment. It's all been damaged, which will probably affect the size of the next vintage. Lee McLean, the CEO of Australian Grape and Wine, told David Clawton it's been a difficult period for growers. Well, there's, there's no doubt that the 2023 vintage is throwing a hell of a lot at a number of different growing regions across the country. Uh, and that has certainly been felt in New South Wales, Victoria and now South Australia. The good news is that for a lot of those grape growers out there who have experienced flooding, this isn't the case across all vineyards, but in a, in a, a lot of vineyards, is that when the floodwaters uh, come into the vineyard, if they sit there for a period and then the, the floodwaters recede, that the vines are usually okay, but there is always some impact on things like trellising and posts and irrigation infrastructure uh, and in the vine's ability to produce fruit in the 2023 vintage as well in some instances. And are there large numbers of vineyards that are in those sort of floodplain areas or, or you know, in areas that generally are affected by flooding? There are. So Australia's three sort of major producing areas are, are all inland irrigated regions. So areas like the Riverina in New South Wales, the Murray Valley in Victoria, uh, and the Riverland in South Australia. And all of those have experienced either flooding or very wet conditions over the last couple of months. But the other big issue for a number of them, and I know this is particularly evident in places like the Riverina, is that there's been pretty significant disease pressure in some of those regions. And, and part of that is due to the fact that, A, it's been wet, but B, it's been so wet that you can't get your machinery, your tractors and sprayers and the like in to, to actually mitigate the worst of it. So we were hearing reports out of Victoria of um, you know floods affecting Rutherglen and Barossa Valley in the Gamby Lakes region. A couple of vineyards had barrels of wine float away. Did you hear about that? Yeah, there was. There's been there's been a couple of reports of, of damage in certain certain businesses uh, of of significant crop losses and significant losses of, of products, which is always really challenging and and uh, and difficult to deal with. Obviously. Uh, Thankfully, those sorts of uh, reports have been limited. So some people saying might have lost 75% of their crop, but have you had a chance to assess overall how it might affect production from Australian vineyards this year? Look, I think there's no doubt that production overall will be down, but it's too early to tell uh, what that disease and flooding impact is going to be from a national level. But I'm tipping a a below average sized vintage for uh, 2023. 
What about dealing with these problems like Danny Mildrew or just getting on to the vineyards in order to do the, the work and spray the chemicals or, or whatever's required? Yeah, it's really, really challenging. Uh, so a number of regions, so the Hunter Valley, for example, and a couple of others have resorted to things like aerial spraying. Now, that obviously doesn't work in, in every instance, but it has provided some alleviation of the worst of the, the effects of some of those disease pressures in regions like that. It really depends on what kind of vineyard you're operating. If you are a, a small vineyard that is operating primarily uh, by hand, uh, your hand pruning, your hand um, spraying and all that sort of thing, uh, you can generally do your best to manage it. If you're working on a, a vineyard that is uh, larger, that is generally um, dealing with machinery, uh, that is much more challenging to, to work through. Are you hearing that people are having to close their doors? Is it affecting the cellar door trade? I think in parts, but generally speaking with the Riverland in particular, there's been actually a real push to make sure people are actually travelling up to the Riverland because a lot of that area was still absolutely available to, to tourism and open for business. But there was a perception out there that due to the floodwaters, people weren't able to make their way out to see um, to see those wineries and, and cellar doors. There has been some damage to cellar doors in certain regions uh, across the country, uh, which has been very challenging for those businesses, of course. But most of the time when there has been flooding, um, you know, our business is pretty, pretty adaptable and resilient. They can get themselves up on their feet after a bit of a clean-up and, and open their doors pretty soon. Now, winemakers, generally speaking, don't like to talk about poor quality wine but what do you think it would do these kind of conditions in a season like this on the quality of the wine for the coming vintage well i mean one of the beauties about that wine is that you know if you're working on a on a single vineyard you will have variations through from year to year uh, and there'll be different sorts of conditions uh, and that's going to that's going to shine through in the wine uh from year to year I, I think overall what we'll what we'll likely see is that where there has been disease pressure uh, in some of those areas, uh, you know, you will see some um, selection of the, the best grapes that are available. So we may see a smaller vintage, but we'll see a, we'll see a high-quality vintage nonetheless because people will be able to be a little bit more selective in what they're putting into the bottle. I suppose the silver lining in this too is, is maybe twofold because there has been an oversupply of wine in recent years. And the other thing is if there's, if there's a lot of water around, that, that bodes well for future uh, vintages, doesn't it, for growers? Well, the, the oversupply situation is, is interesting. And of course, we are in the midst of a, a really significant oversupply situation, and that's directly attributable to what has happened with China imposing those trade uh, restrictions on, on Australian wine. Uh, so um, in some certain, in some ways, uh, a smaller vintage is not necessarily a bad thing for the Australian sector at the moment. Uh, but it is too early to say uh, at this point in time exactly what that's going to be looking like because the, the oversupply that we have in Australia is primarily a, a red wine oversupply as opposed to a white wine oversupply because the vast majority of what we were sending to China was red wine. So I think uh, over the next little while, once some figures start coming in, we'll get a much better picture of that. That is Lee McLean, the CEO of Australian Grape and Wine, speaking to David Clawton there. And the South Australian and federal governments have announced some support for farmers affected by the floods, and Australian Grape and Wine are encouraging grape growers and winemakers to check on their resources on their website for information on how to handle wet conditions in the vines. Uh, 
Now, the markets are slowly starting to come back this week. Uh, let's head out to Hamilton today to find out what happened with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Annie. Agents yard 11,632 sheep at Hamilton this week, where the quality was very good, being principally well-finished crossbred ewes on offer, together with all other weights and grades as available. All the regular buyers were present, but not all fully active, resulting in a market that was very strong, with most categories to be 15 to $20 per head stronger in places Heavy crossbred ewes topped out at 159, well finished merino ewes to 128, light to medium sheep averaging between 410 and 460 cents, and the good merino mutton to average between 450 and 500 cents. Heavy sheep averaging around that 350 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Some hoggets made to 142, rams, the terminal size made to 63, merino rams to $42. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks, Chris. That's Chris Agnew at the Hamilton Sheep Sales. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Now, lastly today, a bit of sad news to report to, to you. We have to say goodbye to one of our colleagues and uh, one of our teammates here at the Victorian Rural Team. Our Gippsland Rural Reporter, Peter Somerville, will be finishing today. It's his last day at the ABC. Now, Pete joined the ABC Rural Team back in 2018. And during that time, you've heard him here on the Country Hour, uh, also hosting Gippsland Breakfast, uh, filling in there, and always on the Rural Reports bright and early in the morning. And you might have even seen him on Landline as well on Sundays. Now, he's covered all areas of agriculture during his time here. And one of the highlights for Peter and his coverage that a lot of people have mentioned to me uh, when we talk about Pete is the excellent coverage he did of the Black Summer bushfires uh, out in Gippsland and really brought a calmness and local knowledge to that awful time. Now, on behalf of the Victorian Rural team here, I would like to say thank you to Peter for his hard work, his compelling stories, his extensive coverage, but also thank you for being a wonderful colleague, a brilliant journalist and a really great friend. And I've got to say, Pete, you're going to be very sorely missed in this team and on the Country Hour and the Rural Reports as well. We do wish you all the best for the future and Please don't stay a stranger. Come say hello and come join in and always stay in touch because we love hearing from you. But thank you so much for, yeah, being a wonderful colleague and all the best for the future. And uh, hopefully we'll hear from you again soon. Uh, I also got to say quickly um, on the text line, I think Paul Mumford out in Gippsland as well got the tip off that it was Pete's last day and sent in a really lovely text message, but I'll just read a tiny little bit. But he also says, thank you, Peter, and the best of luck for the new chapter you're about to start. To start, you excel in anything that you take on, and I hope that we can retain your skills within agriculture. Thanks for sending that in, Paul. It's a lovely tribute. That's all the time we have for today on the Country Hour. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Uh, In the chair on Monday will be the wonderful Jane McNaughton and I'll be on the Rural Report uh, Monday morning along with Angus Verley as well. But thank you so much for uh, listening this week. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Hope it gets to start soon. And lastly, thanks again to Pete Somerville for his great work. It's one o'clock. It's time to find out what is making news with the ABC Newsroom. (laughs) 